Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. This is Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks. This is Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. Eric Adams, a.k.a. Xenomorphine. And joining us is a special guest star. If you listen to the Perfect Organism podcast, you know him. It is Mr. Christian Matzka. Welcome back to our podcast, Christian. Thanks so much, guys. It's a pleasure to have you back. Uh, I know you guys don't get to talk comic too much, so I was like, <laughs> I need a comic guest. I know who to go to. Christian, come on over if you like the book. <laughs> if you like the book, which was why I asked you. Because... This is episode 148, and Corporal Hicks is sick to fucking death of negative episodes that have been going on lately. We needed a positive one. I sat there, and I went, Eric, what's your favorite comic? And Eric went, I named a few. Well, yeah, true. But one of the ones he picked was also one that one of our uh, fandom brothers suffering through the Ukraine at the minute, Kradan, has asked us to cover in the past. So I was like, fuck it, that's what we're doing. We're going to do Sacrifice, and... Then when I was like, oh, shorts, maybe we should do two shorts. I was like, there's only one other you can pair with that because it always gets paired together. And that was Salvation. So episode 148, we're going to be talking Aliens Sacrifice and Aliens Salvation. Two short comics from Dark Horse in 1993. These are ones that kind of have a good reputation. Salvation in particular, especially because some of the pedigree behind it. Sacrifice, I think he's one I don't get seen talking about outside of the fact that it is often lumped together with with Salvation for like one of the random releases they did, you know. It was both of them paired together. And thematically speaking, they're both very relevant to each other. And we were sat here discussing, you know, does this actually lead into each other? Uh, because there's a lot going on together. So um, I'm quite looking forward to this one. So Eric, I'll let you start us off as this was your pick. We'll be starting with Sacrifice as that was the first of the two published. And tell us why, briefly, before we dig into it, why is this one of your favourites? Why did you pick this when I asked? Yeah, well, I was at high school when I read this. It came out in the um, Dark Horse, wasn't it, that did the um, British comic. And I, firstly, I have really fond memories of how good the artwork was for this. This remains to me one of the golden standards for alien comics because it has it's not just very sort of photorealistic when it comes to the human figures but it has such beautiful attention to the lighting and that was really obviously a key ingredient to Ridley Scott's cinematography in the original Alien but they do it in a in a jungle setting here which itself gives a nice creepy vibe because you've got the, the foliage giving all that kind of... Yeah, that Nostromo lighting through the, you know, the, the slits in the original film. And here you've got the same kind of effect with leaves. But I will always remember it. And uh, viewers here who don't like the swearing in our podcast, switch off now briefly. I always remember it for the immense mind fuck this story gives because there is one and it really puts you as a reader on the horns of a dilemma because it does make you wonder what would I do and you may well think well I would come down on this side or the other but it does that interesting thing where it does depict both sides of having an internal logic 
And even when you're thinking of a villain in a story, it's always nice to have an internal logic to what that villain does or, you know, a faction that you might think is morally dubious. But you think, you know, I might not do that, but they've got a point or it was working for them kind of thing. And it's also got a nice resonance because you feel it's not just a character arc for the main character, but it feels like there's a character arc for the characters she meets because the secondary and tertiary characters are behaving one way initially and it takes meeting her for them to gain a new perspective. So it's one of those stories where everything sort of feeds nicely into itself. It feels like a genuinely rewarding tale. And we often speak about the alien being having those Lovecraftian roots. This feels very much like an HP Lovecraft story because it's that sort of small settlement out in the middle of nowhere. There are religious themes as that sort of ancient cosmic horror themes and it's forcing people to undertake, shall we say, diabolical acts for the sake of survival and justifying it to themselves. And it's just, it's got all those ingredients and it, it's that perfect storm. It's, it's not flawless, but it's absolutely one of those that you can come back, as I did in preparation for this episode, you can come back years later, read back into it, and it will have that magical effect on you. It's a very mature storyline, which rewards you as you when you grow up and you come back to the same material. But yeah, it's got all those vital ingredients of it's not just nostalgia for nostalgia's sake, it's a genuinely rewarding story to read through and just peruse visually. Christian, how about you? Because you didn't seem as enthusiastic as Eric was when I was talking to you. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I grew up in the Dark Horse comics. I think I'm about the same age as Eric. And the UK Aliens comic book was a big deal because we had to have it imported to get it here. And I, if I'm correct, this was the first comic book or first storyline that was written specifically for that magazine and then came to the US afterward. Maybe I'm not right, but that's where I saw it first was in the, the oversized deluxe magazine. It was in there first and then got its own one-shot kind of collection before the various other reprints, yeah. So that was really cool because we were used to getting these little nuggets of the stories that we'd already bought months earlier repackaged with cool articles. So to get something brand new was really neat. I would say this story is is almost the probably the only folk horror alien story that's ever been published. Because you have, as Eric was just saying, you have that sense of, it, it feels like it's out of time. It feels almost earlier than our own time period. And it's it's in a jungle, but it's sort of a, an overgrown setting. They're very isolated. And there's that ritual aspect of what's going on that is super appealing. And I'm a, a gigantic Lovecraft fan. Uh, I hadn't really think, thought of it in those terms, but that's a nice way to, to look at it. So I loved Dark Horse's plan of having little individual, often not interconnected storylines. I, I still think that is a wonderful way to approach the alien. And this is a great example of that, where I don't need this to ever connect to anything else. It's just amazing to get dropped into it and to deal with the dilemma. Yeah, I'm going to agree with what you said there last, Christian. I, I do. Well, I, I do love it when Dark Horse, I, I did love it, I guess, because they don't do it anymore. When Dark Horse did those individual alien stories that were very focused, very much their own stories in their own style. And this comic, I actually didn't remember. 
Salvation, I did because there was a period in my, I think, late teens, early 20s or something where I was working on a ski lift in the summer. You in that ski lift. It's always that ski lift. I know. That's when I burned through every omnibus because the ski lift in the summer is not as busy as in the winter. So you're only helping the occasional biker unload instead of all the skiers and snowboarders. So I had a lot of time to read. We were encouraged to read. So it's not like I was slacking. We did have a lot of free time on that lift. So that's when I had burned through all the omnibus. And a lot of comics I have revisited, but a number of them I have not. Salvation was one of the ones I hadn't, but I remembered. Sacrifice, I always remembered in that big Dark Horse book, the panel to panel that had the different artworks, the baby being held up to the alien, and how weird and creepy that was. I had that memory of it, but for some reason, I didn't I didn't remember the comic itself. So reading it now, it was just awesome. I loved it. I think you're spot on about the art, Eric, the lighting. Every panel kind of looks like a painting. So the, the panel are just beautiful. And this is one of the few alien comics that actually describe that. Not only just the artwork, but the story itself. is It's a beautiful story. I was just quite impressed with it. It wasn't too long. It was quite condensed. There was a few areas where I think maybe it could have actually gone a bit more into things, gone a bit longer. Some parts where it ties into the wider Dark Horse narrative where that I was kind of wondering of like the flashback scene with her mother. I'm like, well, is that the Earth War stuff? But just the interaction between the two main characters, the revelation we find out about the main character, character. And like you were saying, Eric, there's a dilemma for different perspectives. And there's also the element of someone losing their faith, which I could also kind of relate to. given given I, I grew up with faith. So I, I feel that story handled that really well. And differing perspectives were, were challenged. And both perspectives moved by the end of the story, significantly so. So yeah, I, I just loved this comic, guys. Like I this comic was awesome. Now, this is one of those comics I do come back to a lot. I don't salvation very much, but this one I come back to a lot. And it's like Eric was saying, it is a fucking gorgeous, gorgeous comic. Is it Paul Johnson? Was that the artist? Yeah, Paul Johnson's artwork for this is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. It's got to be one of the best of Dark Horse's visuals. You know, they, they are comics. They are visual medium. And this was just, there was like a texture to it that I really liked, which gave it somewhat of a nightmarish feeling. And also, you know, where Christian mentioned earlier, you know, it felt out of time. And the vibe I got was it felt very Victorian to me. Eric was talking about lighting. There's a panel where it's her, it's Anne McKay, the main character, is looking out the door at this group of people going off to do we don't know what. And there's just this gorgeous green, really strange tone of green just shining through the the door. And it just looks like a a scene out of a nightmare, a Victorian nightmare. And I was like, this is brilliant. It's very mature, as Eric was saying. You know, there's a lot of maturity in the way the themes in it are handled you know it's it's crisis of faith it's crisis of morality sci-fi does morality really well or it does when it does it when it's doing good sci-fi you know it was something i was talking to a co-worker about actually in regards to the orville you know that is one of the few shows i think at the minute that is doing good morality plays in sci-fi you know is doing star trek back when star trek used to do it well <laughs> now that orville stopped trying to be funny and it is just being a rip-off but it's doing it well and it's brilliant and i wouldn't say alien really does that 
You know, Alien doesn't do morality tales. It doesn't do morality questions or challenges quite like this does. Because I was sat there and I was like, Jesus Christ, would I? Would I be cool with this? But then it also led me down other arguments at the minute where I was like, oh, this, this is too heady. This is too this is too much for me right now. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliantly mature topic and story and, and how it handles it and how everything moves around. And it looks gorgeous. So... I would happily revisit this one. And I do. I do often. The only thing I'm never really keen on it is, I don't know if it's just because we live in a, you know, that, that Me Too world at the minute, but I don't like how Masters treats Anne in regards to, don't worry, I'm going to fucking wear you down. You're going to be my, my live-in wife at some point. <laughs> and I don't think I ever really liked that very well, but especially now. But I have a lot of problems with romance in how they're handled. Oh, yeah, it was the early 90s. <laughs> well, I, th- I think the character, he says, oh, no, I don't, I'm not for that way. You, I think you get the impression that he, he says, live with me, but she interprets it like a relationship. But I think he means live with me as in share accommodation because you get so lonely here. No. Oh, they talking But sex. how he comes on to it, yeah. It, you know, it reminded me of, actually, it reminded me how, I forget the name, but in the original AVB comic where that James Cameron faced character and he came onto Machiko. It reminded me a bit about like that sequence there, but it's it's more of a, a heavier tone to it in this. Yeah, definitely. Kind of reminded me of Alien Isolation, honestly, in the banners you see, like, how well do you know your long haul sex partner? And so <laughs> yeah. it, it goes to that, the whole space isolation thing where and this has been a, a common theme in some of the alien books as well, as people who have different lives back on Earth, they're in space. And the reality is they're human and these things happen. So it doesn't surprise me that they would just be more forward about it, especially if they're in a survival situation. See, that's never something I buy. I, n- I, ne- no. I never like the whole horror situation, let's go bang kind of thing. What do they, what do they call it? Re- reaffirmation of life, that kind of stuff. And to be fair, that's not how the book, that's not how Sacrifice plays it. And I just, I found it a bit uncomfortable. But regardless, fantastic fucking comic gorgeous fucking comic and i'm actually quite looking forward to diving into this one with you guys more when you say like the me too and you know it's different time now the the one thing that did strike me that feels slightly it doesn't have the intended impact now was back then i get the impression they were trying to make it feel like futuristic because you find out she's a female priest and literally as soon as she says it all the characters go what sort of thing and these days it'd be like oh you're a female priest okay because i think it was on the following year the first female vicar happened in britain in 94 because that's when the vicar of dibley show came out and all the rest of it in this year when that comic was published there were no female the at least in okay. the uk so at that time i think that was intended to make it feel like yeah they're religious but it's future religion but now when we read it in 2022 it doesn't have that feel and like you're looking at the characters go what but you're thinking why is that a mystery but you have to think back when it was published that was unheard of a female vicar a female priest so that's one of those things which people who are new to it keep that in mind because it was it was literally written at that well, i think time. it still would be pretty unheard of in a lot of religions these days yeah you you mean the church of england right yeah, yeah. So that's interesting because i'd never read that didn't factor into it at all in terms of um, when i was reading it wasn't so much a gender thing as it was a just this particular character thing so that's, that's yeah really interesting that that's added to it's just I, I got i remember at the time reading it it felt like oh female priest yeah that is a, a weird but now i just read it and i go oh female priest yeah she's just 
saying that's the reason she wasn't hooking up with him, among other things, because they talk about, oh, you do a vow of celibacy. Or so. A little sacrifice they make to God. And they do explain why she became a priest in a very like concise way, and it makes sense. It does make me wonder about the wider world that caused her traumatic experience, you know, the whole Earth War thing, and she just runs across the street to this, this cathedral there, and I was like, wait, isn't there an alien invasion going on? That's Like, what's going on? Yes, so, I thought But that. it doesn't matter, because the story is focused on what's happening here. I like that turn of phrase she used in it. She said that she believed, she believed like the creed, the religious text with a ferocity which scared even the older priests. There are little bits of dialogue like that in this. That like you get that alien sort of self-deprecate. Like she asks someone, oh, I can smell alcohol on you. And he, he just says, well, I'd hope so. I've been drinking since blah, blah, blah. And of course, later on, you find out the reason he's been drinking is because of what they've been doing. But it, it, it's there's some really nice mature dialogue. They speak like real adults would. They're, it doesn't feel like when characters in a comic book, they speak like real people in this. But there is some absolutely wonderful sort of, perhaps not so speak like a real person, but just wonderful language in it. And there was one bit in particular that I really liked where it, it sort of added to that, what I was saying earlier, you know, about this nightmarish quality to the to the comic where she's talking about being scared and stuff. And she says, and I'm shivering like women used to do in ghost stories before our lives became so grotesque the ghost felt obsolete and i was like jesus christ i love that line that is brilliant yeah all the all the dialogue she has to herself her inner dialogue is just so well done in this so what what do we think of Anne mckay then as the character i was a little apprehensive at first because i'm just like oh she's just gonna be the godly priest this whole thing but no again there's a crisis of faith there and there's a lot of internal debate among herself and by by story's end she's ended up in in a different place because of her experiences and it makes for a really interesting character again this is a shorter comic with what limited time we have of them but we do go into their past we see kind of their origins of who they are now and the significant events in the story that challenge those beliefs and kind of reform them a little bit there's also an element of uh, it doesn't go into this too much but there's an element of survivor's guilt as well because she is the only survivor of this ship of hers this missionary ship that crash lands on this planet with this small group of I don't know what you're just colonists or outpost or something that they were hoping her ship was some something to rescue them, like a military ship or a supply ship or something like that. But it ended up just being a ministry ship. I'm, I'm curious about the crisis of, of faith stuff, especially from your perspective as well, Adam. So I grew up in Utah County, Mormon. And if anyone knows that Utah is very heavily Mormon, not quite as much these days as it was when I was growing up. It's become quite a bit more eclectic, I would say, especially around Salt Lake City. But yeah, growing up, I think I was just kind of raised Mormon. My parents were converts. I think I was just kind of raised Mormon because that was the religion around here. 
but they're you know mormonism is not an easy religion <laughs> to follow <laughs> so yeah there's definitely at a certain point where you start encountering other things the older you get where it makes you start to question things in a more shit, the world is like this. Like, how does the square with my beliefs kind of thing? And I definitely saw some of that with this character. So I could I could kind of relate to it. I mean, I was never a priest or anything. I was never that religious. So it's a little different, but it was definitely a point that I could be like, that's really interesting. Any resonance for you there, Christian? Or was that just a, a facet of an interesting character? Since Adam went, I'll talk about it. I was raised Lutheran. My dad was actually a pastor, but I should say there were lots of, of female pastors even back in the 80s and 90s. So as an American, and that, that didn't strike me as anything particularly novel. And after my dad's death, I left the church. It just didn't hold anything for me. But it's always interesting to go back and look at characters who touch on those kinds of, of memories of you know how the church works and whatnot. I think it's important or it's good for the story that she is a woman, because if it had been a male character in that position, when the big revelation comes out, I don't think that it would have, because she's the cipher for the readers, I don't think it would have the same impact. You're thinking more in terms of the, the maternal perspective? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's not it's not a facet of her character though, is it? I mean, I I never read any maternalness from what she was doing other than I always felt it was more the religion than the gender, but it's like she says towards the end when she makes the decision to go and stab the alien with a spear. I laugh. It doesn't quite work like that, but that's essentially what she does. She decides, you know, fuck it, I'm gonna go. But I, I tend to think it's more around that stereotypical view of, of religion, you know, the perfect shiny light version of religions where it's, you know, do unto others kind of thing, where that's more the horror for her. So it looks like we've lost Christian. Maybe, maybe we'll get him back, but we're going to keep going until if that happens. So Adam, I believe you were about to... Yeah, so before we completely move on from the personal experience with religion thing, I realized I, I have to correct myself. I actually was a priest really? <laughs> in the Mormon church because I, I can't... I can't lose my ex-Mormon cred here. So, okay, well, a priest in the Mormon church is not like a priest in like pretty much every other religion. I was hoping you were going to say the Church of the Immaculate Incubation. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a priest I would be in now. But but no, a, a, a priest in the Mormon church is like a rank you reach as a teenager. And it's like a rank that all young men reach. There's like deacon, priest, there's another one. So I'm, I'm not perfect on my memory, but it's not like a traditional priest in in other religions. Not the preacher. Right, no. Okay. I mean, they teach you how to do that shit because you're supposed to go on a mission at the end of your teenage years and spend two years of your life doing that. But I never did. But that's the thing that's expected of like most, if not all young men growing up in the church, even though, of course, not all do that. You're saying we've done Prometheus episodes and had an actual ex-deacon <laughs> involved right. in our yeah. conversation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was never religious. I mean, my mother was, my dad very wasn't. Like I used to go to church and stuff with me, with my grandparent, uh, my grandma, and, and my mum and stuff like that. But then, then it got to a point where it's like, right, make your own decision. And I was like, nope, I've got other things to be doing. Yeah, I think I think it was more the culture than my parents. And again, the culture has really changed here in Utah. It's a lot different than when I was growing up. But my parents were converts, but they were honestly more spiritual than religious. I think they just kind of like the community aspect of it. But I think. Unfortunately, the, the religion in the community was there's things about it in terms of like having to live up to their standards that they expect of you and not really allowing you to question things on your own, which was kind of like the genesis of me having my crisis of faith or whatever. So, But anyway, not to spend too much time on personal shit. 
Well, no, I mean, it's it's still relevant because even if you're not, I think especially now, you know how much I went off on the whole it's what I choose to believe thing in the Prometheus episode. It's still relevant now because it doesn't have to be a crisis of faith so much as a crisis of perspective. Yeah. You know, because at the end of the book, you know, throughout sacrifice and perspective is shaped by the faith, you know, it's shaped by... I don't want to say that stereotypical is a detraction to the way the, the way the story handles it, but more the broader strokes of, of how religions tend to tell you to operate, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, religion has always had an interesting kind of area in the alien universe. And I always love the moment in Alien Resurrection where Call and Ripley go into that chapel and Call crosses herself and Ripley's like, you're programmed to do that? Like, what? And it's always just a nice scene in, in that that area. So there's moments where it comes up and Prometheus was probably the most significant time it came up in the franchise at that point. And I do think they pulled back on that a lot in Covenant. Covenant didn't really have the religious elements. I mean, it kind of did like Dante's Inferno kind of stuff. I don't know. but like, and, and Orm was supposed to be religiously persecuted. That, oh, that's right. Yeah. Orm, Orm was quite religious. Yeah. So that the element was still there, but not like it was in Prometheus. It wasn't really dealt with, but I think more what I was getting at was, you know, it can be relevant outside of religion because her perspective, her truth is is challenged and her perspective changes yeah. as a result, you know, at, at the end of it. And I like that growth. I like the ability for people to recognize, not necessarily wrong, but yes, wrong. This whole thing. Things that could be done differently. Like, because yeah. their, their perspective changes as well because of her. So they both affect each other's perspective, which I thought was the most interesting thing. The story wasn't just boring in the sense that, like, oh, they were so inspired by her morality that they changed their ways. It's like, no, they're both challenged and they both change. And, it, and it's interesting as well because I think nowadays when people are challenged, the reaction is to shut down, yeah, put up a wall, you know, no, this isn't what I want to believe. Fuck off. But it was interesting in this one where she's basically saying to them you are the monsters you know you are inhuman and and i, th I guess that that's part of the morality play the morality question of, of sacrifices how are you still human if you're sacrificing these babies you know to but they weren't really human babies though. well they were See, that was an interesting that was an interesting point. Well, that, that's part of the question, though, isn't it, Eric? You know, they're claiming that they aren't babies because of the nature of conception, I guess, creation. For people who aren't familiar, it's basically she discovers they've been creating cloned infants. They take them to a literal sacrificial altar. Basically, it's a stone. The alien takes it, and then they're not bothered by the alien. They say, oh, well, they're too young. They don't say they're... Because I would have thought if you're going to do this, you'd have genetically modified them, so say they don't have brains or something. Here, they clearly do. And rereading it, I don't know if it's intentional, but I kind of got a feeling, are they going for a, like an, an analogy to do with the abortion debate? Because it was kind of that. That is exactly what I was thinking as I was reading it. Because they do say they're too young to do it. and But Yen Yu, the reader, you're saying, well, they clearly are. They're too young to feel pain or to feel fear. But clearly you're seeing this infant and it does have emotional life. Was this a thing at the time? I mean, obviously, it's come back again. Not in now. Britain. Yeah, not not in Brit in the US. Yeah, yeah in the in, US. In Britain, it's never really been a, a thing. But in terms of religion, what I would say is because, you know, this is my youth in high school. I remember the, the religious iconography, which does flow heavily through this. This had more resonance for the time, 93, because this was just a year after Alien 3 had been released, which had a huge chunk of religious stuff in it. 
it. You know, the prisoners and their sort of pseudo cult religion thing that they had going on. But here it's because this is not the typical Ellen Ripley clone. She is definitely her own person in this. Her background is, for example, very much informed by the the events of Earthworld, which they do stipulate was 20 years ago. And I do like how they, they explain why nobody has come for them, where they say, well, nobody pays much attention to somewhere out in the middle of nowhere when, that only has one alien. So you get the impression that, yeah, that, they got bigger fish to fry. But this story could have just as easily been, instead of called Sacrifice, they could have just as easily called it Martyr. Because you do have the similar thing as Ripley goes through in Alien 3. She, it's not that she's got a chestburster, but she feels she is inclined to set the example for them. Because for her, she can't live with having to do what they do. She goes out and she at one point does say, well, do you want to take my place? Have you got that courage? But she doesn't judge them for it. So there is that kind of pseudo Jesus kind of mentality. But there is, for example, one panel, which is beautifully done with what I said earlier about the lighting, where she's got this spear and there are these god rays coming down on her face. And because of how the spear looks to me at that point, it very much gave this visual reference to St. George and the Dragon. And although it's never called the dragon in this story, that was something that reinforced me thinking, oh, Alien 3, the dragon. And of course, the other relevance this has got to Alien 3 is they have no weapons. But in this story, they deal with having no weapon more intelligently than they do in Alien 3. Because in Alien 3, they're just basically, well, we've got nothing, let's run away from it. In here, they actually set traps. She uses a spear, one of them has one a grenade, it's the only thing left to them. They use what they have intelligently and it fed into the and even the aftermath of that, where it spoiler alert, it leaves her blind, but it's like, you know, she is blind to God at the end of it. She doesn't become agnostic. It's a journey of becoming an atheist to her. Which I think was a mistake. I think they could have done agnostic. But it worked for I her. Didn't take it as that. I could see it as agnosticism. Well, for her, she says, "Now I'm alone, and there is no god, and there is no devil." That indicates she doesn't. She's lost her faith completely in either. And of course, she she breaks her vow of celibacy because she says, "I think Masters will be a good man." Yeah. Blah blah blah. There's a lot of iconography that flows. There's a lot of Alien 3 resonance yeah. in it. For me. And I forgot to mention when we had the religion in the franchise, I forgot Alien 3. Like, that was a big one for sure. But I love that panel where the alien gets destroyed by that grenade. It's just so good. Like, I feel like in a lot of comic panels, they, they kind of prioritize the big panels, you know? Like, they rush through the little ones to get to, like, the big double page panels or whatever. But in this one, every single panel feels like a painting that Passion was put into. But yeah, I mean, the, she, she was a really interesting character in this story and especially her her interaction with what was the man man's name who's pursuing her john masters john masters that's right there's also ricketts who very looks and comes across very much like quint in jaws except with a big sort of hit i don't know if it was deliberately like hicks but you have a similar very scar down one face which it turns out you do find out reasons for but he is the sort of psychotic guy that's really making her feel uncomfortable in the story. Yeah. 
How did you guys feel about the behavior of the alien? The fact that it was satisfied with just these consistent sacrifices and it would never attack their base as long as they were doing that, you know, consistently? Like It worked as a story, but that was what I meant earlier on when I said it's not flawless. To me, I don't think it would have mattered. It would yeah. have just gone after all of them anyway. But in terms of a self-contained story, it worked really nicely as a plot device. Because yeah. it's very much, again, it's like a dragon, the whole thing about sacrificing the virgin maiden, and babies are literal, you know, innocence. They symbolize it. You sacrifice innocence to the dragon, you keep it in its lair. And you, of course, you have the whole thing about demonic sacrifice. They're literally sacrificing them on all to the yeah. demon to take away. Also, I did like the whole thing where you had the visuals of glints looking like eyes on the alien. They literally had the horns coming yeah. out. And then at the end, when you see what she sees, you see them diminish and it becomes the eyeless alien. But you did have that. It worked within the story. And it worked to give a reason for the alien later attacking the colony because then it got reinforced to the viewer that, yeah, what they were doing did work. It wasn't that they were psychotic. They were doing this because they felt forced to. But in terms of it being an alien story, yeah, I would have preferred an, an extra reason because I don't think that would have... Because the alien in Nostroma, it wasn't happy after it killed Brett. It was still Dallas and Parker. It was going after him. That wasn't taking a, like two weeks, like they said. What if they'd have given it, for example, here's an idea just came to mind, I think it was two days. I think they did that every two days. Oh, yeah, because they said if uh -huh. she goes out, we won't have to feed it for a week. Yeah. 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 What if they had said, for example, in the genetic modification of the clones, they'd given it some sort of chemicals to pacify it? That could have worked. That could have explained yeah. it. And that's that gives extra reason for feeding it medicine, but just feeding it babies. <laughs> Let's do cannibalism. A baby a day keeps the alien away. <laughs> Maybe every two days Yeah, every away. two days They needed to be a bit extra But it worked as that kind of Lovecraftian Feed the demon It's that whole thing about the analogy of What is democracy It's feeding the crocodile in the hope it eats you last It's it's a nice analogy It's just as an alien story I, do, I wish they'd have given it extra resonance Yeah I kind of agree with Eric in the looking at it from, you know, the the big franchise sort of view. It doesn't work great. I mean, obviously we've seen the alien eat at various points throughout, you know, throughout the franchise. And you now I'm rereading Labyrinth at the minute and there's a whole thing in there about, you know, how high up in the priority of the alien's, you know, mental <laughs> processes uh, hunger is and stuff like that. But it's one of those things where it's so thematically relevant to the story that's going on is this perspective of the alien being the devil. It must be said also, people who haven't read it, you don't see what it does to them. And that's what I liked. I liked that they kept that ambiguous because you you don't know it's eating. I was expecting, are they going to go full horror and you're going to see like all these babies cocooned or something and just they duck because it says early on they don't survive away from the machines. It could have gone that way, but you don't know what it did. So I really like that was also really nicely done. So it could have just been their interpretation, but if it was establishing a hive, I mean, it was just a single alien. So it goes to like, well, how would it grow a hive? Queen molting, egg morphing? Like, I mean, that's just fan stuff. But yeah, they specifically mention it's satisfied with like it eats animals, but it's more satisfied with human blood. Yeah. Well, they think. They think it eats animals yeah. and they think the babies satisfy its bloodlust for human. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things where there's it's a lot of stuff going off 
behind the panel or leaving it to your interpretation or their interpretation and that's i think helps the nightmare helps the horror feel of of the story as well i think the comic just oozes this nightmare quality and you know it's even even in some of the dialogue that's brought up you know i I reread it again today you know i've read it a couple of times recently where she's walking around looking at everything and she's saying you know in the settlement the monster is everywhere a fog a cloud in every corner every home and every gaze and i'm just like god damn you know eric was comparing it to to lovecraft and was what late 1800s yeah what period would that be considered it was back in the day yeah i don't know but But it's 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 this kind of pre or just industrialish kind of feel to the tone and the atmosphere of of, of the story and the way it's written and, and in the way it's visualized because even the architecture, it's not that Hadley's Hope no. sort of contained. These are like bricks in the wall as well. It looks that like that kind of remote fishing village type thing. See, I, I got like Jack the Ripper kind of vibes, yeah. you know, that kind Even of stuff. Even the cloning machine was like, is this like a furnace or something? Like it was, it was like... very cyberpunk, not cyberpunk, steampunk, wasn't it? It reminded me a lot of what you used to see back at, at that time, the early 90s, what you would have seen in Doctor Who. It's that kind of set design, that clone. It was that kind of angular dome sort of thing. And it, it felt very much like, I don't know if the writer's British, but it felt very British in tone. Blake Seven sort of thing. He's an English comic book writer, yeah. Yeah. He wrote for 2000 AD. Yeah, that comes across, yeah. I also got to say how awesome the nightmare art panels are. Oh, God, yes. When yeah. Anna's seeing the alien in her dreams, because that's what took her mother was the alien on earth i guess and so there's a number of sequences in the story where she's seeing that like demonic visage of the alien in her dreams so it was just really impressive how the the aliens looked in her her nightmares and we've seen this theme in some other stories as well the comic will go into salvation also has nightmares and even the more recent marvel comic i would say to a much less artistically impressive degree has nightmare sequences as well so it's always been something that's been very prominent in a number of the comics i think and how they're handled visually is one of the most unique and interesting aspects of the art in this one but it also maintained the sort of texture that a lot of the other panels had in in the style which I think worked really well as well. And I'm actually intrigued by the whole, do you think it was the Earth Hive, Earth War kind of thing to the backstory? Because it's not specified at all, is it? I think it's strongly inferred that it's 20 years on. Well, they say 20 years after. Because they say this is one lone alien isn't a big deal. The one thing I do like about the 20 year thing is there is, again, it's this really nice line of internal dialogue she has where she's going out on her own martyrdom thing to face the alien. And she says, it took me half an hour, but it actually feels like, no, it took me 20 years. And you do get that because she's gone back to that whole thing about an alien went after her mother. And her, although her mother says, oh, it's in the house. So you definitely get that feeling of this is when everyone knows about the alien. But it's that jerk for her, it's taken 20 years. This is her literally facing her inner demon as well as the demon. But what you said earlier about the the thing about the nightmarish tone and you have that again, the dialogue about, oh, it's in every gaze. It's going. When we had the episode where we talked about Alien 
And Syl from the forums was on here, and he pointed out one of the things about Alien that works so well is the character of the alien. As soon as it's birthed, it's always a character in the room, even if it's not physically there. And that's what this brings forward, because it's and it's not just nightmares. A lot of this, a lot of this story, you don't just get the alien permeating; you get that sense of guilt, the sense of guilt in this is almost it's tangible you get this you go back to the beginning again and you get these people they are acting stressed out but you think once you realize the reason for it you go god yeah that's gonna really play on your own morality everything needs drenched in guilt throughout the whole thing i mean even her thing where you get a sense of she's got as you said earlier survivor's guilt with her mother everything is they want if they could have done things differently they would have liked to but it had to be that way. They don't mention it, but it, again, it's, it's like Job, the whole thing about that. You're being tested. Your faith is being tested, but you've got to do these horrific things to get to that point. Well, survivors killed not only with her mother, but also her shipmates as well, because she was the only survivor of the crash. The guilt thing's kind of there in the in Masters as well, though, you know, and she, she brings it up, him drinking himself into a stupor to still function with what they were doing. So, you know, it, it's in the atmosphere and it is perhaps not so in your face about it because I feel like everything thematically is handled very not subtly but very competently you know it doesn't feel too signposted or too in your face or too preachy it's just a part of the narrative tapestry that's going off throughout the story that it just all comes together so fucking nicely even Anne's reaction it's not one of the typical comic things you have this very muted reserved thing where when she gets back to the colony she's just sort of like staggering walking in in a stupor and she just sort of does that impulsive hit someone it's that visceral this feels like the emotional reaction someone would have you get that muted thing until it just pressure building yeah and it's not done it doesn't feel like a comic these feel like real people Mm -hmm. anything else left to say on this one just really solid comics if any of you listening haven't checked it out already and you're listening to this go check it out it's available now through marvel through the second omnibus i don't know if it's available individually yet because i know they've started to release a few of the older comics digitally individually but yeah definitely one of the better ones from Dark Horse, in my opinion. And neither went on to really do anything else with the franchise, unfortunately. Um, Peter Milligan, he was the writer. He All he did was sacrifice. And Paul Johnson, who was the artist, both line and colour, all he did was sacrifice and various covers for the magazine related to the, the sacrifice issues, which is a damn shame. Yep, because it's really good. Some of the best art in the series really is. And some of the best writing. Yeah, it's so... We say mature in terms of like themes and, and subject matter and stuff like that, but mature in the way it's so competently handled Presented. as well. Yeah, very, very good comic. Adam said, what, 10 out of 10 in your message to me, didn't you? Yep. I would go with that. Would you go that high, Eric? I'd certainly say it's eight, nine out of ten, because as I said, there are those little flaws in terms of does it fit into the thing as a whole, not quite that as one of those self-contained stories. I mean, you could almost just replace the alien with an original monster and it would work equally as well. Yeah, that's fair. So you could replace it with a vampire. You would have the same things going on. But it's one of those ones which it haunts you. Mm Mm-hmm. 
you read it and it continues to haunt you. And it, it's the best stories are thought provoking. And this really does. It makes yeah. you think. Well, it makes you wonder how you would react in that situation. You know, yeah. I, I was sat there at the end of it thinking, God, <laughs> would I have been cool with that? Yeah. But definitely an eight, nine out of 10 for me. Definitely. See, I, I completely see where it was coming from. But I think I'd go 10 as well. You know, I think I would. Issues with alien behavior and it's the ability to take it out and put in a different monster aside. But I think that just goes to show the competency in which the story is written. Yeah. If you're reading this, you you go and you say, oh, it's an alien comic. You have to um, realize if you're not already familiar with the story, it's like alien. You don't see the alien very much. It doesn't have standout boom, boom, boom sort of dynamic things. But when it does show up, it's got impact, but mm-hmm. it's got that kind of Ridley Scott impact. It's not leaping all over the place. You see when it's landed on something or when it's looming over something. It's very atmospheric panels yeah. when you it's see it. It's not an action thing. It's it's a horror. It's a nightmare. Yeah. A lot of it's shadow. Yeah. It's, it's Even when it's presence. not there, it's presence is felt. Yep. But yeah, I don't think a 10 for me and well, really for anything means perfect. Like nothing's ever like perfect, but it's definitely magnificent. Uh Extremely solid. One of the best alien comics, in my opinion. So this one is Alien Salvation is also, I think, considered one of the best. And I don't think I'd agree with that. Like, it has such a high pedigree behind it. You know, it's written by Dave Gibbons, who wrote, among many things, Watchmen, which is one of my favorite graphic novels. I say graphic novels there because I know that's that's one of the comics that gets brought up for the whole comic thing. And it also artwork by Mike Mignola, who is pedigree of... Hellboy, you know, these are really talented and impressive people. But while it touches on a lot of the same themes that Sacrifice does, I don't think it's as strongly written. Yeah. Delivered. If any of you are familiar with the Hellboy artwork style, this is very much in that same vein. It's very stylized, yeah. Recognizable as that. But I still think the aliens are really well done and the art is really strong. For me, it's not quite as, but it might just be preference. It's not quite as strong as Sacrifice, but it is really good. And and for me, like, I, I like this story a lot. I just didn't love it like I did Sacrifice. Like, for me, if we just want to get into ratings right off the bat here, for me, this was about an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I'd agree. Like, there's a lot of visual strength in stylization. It's like it's one of the charms of the, the films. There's a lot of not necessarily visual stylization, but individuality in the way those films are and i think that's always a nice thing in the comics as well is again because it's a visual i think comics are more visual than the films in the way that the art style tends to i think we think it's more important in comics well with a comic it's not like a film with a comic it's the equivalent of putting every single scene on pause so you're you're visually you're lingering on the imagery more than something in motion so it's a little more important with comics probably 
so that stylization is really cool to have in these comics as well because it also helps them stand apart and you know Mignola did more than just the artwork in this he also did one of the covers for the original AVP he did the issue zero the collection of i think it was dark horse presents you know the prequel stuff in that oh that's right i remember that which is very much mignola's style in that and i do really like his style i do you know there's some absolute oh and colors were by matt hollingsworth but yeah you know there's some really good panels in this some really good representation of the alien in this and there's some i'm not so fond of but like there, there was a panel of um, him imagining himself having eaten. It's that nightmare sequence with the the alien looming over him, and he's a skeleton. Like I love that. I think that looks brilliant. Yeah, that was really cool. Again, nightmare sequence, just like we saw in Sacrifice. It doesn't go into the nightmares quite as much in this one, but they are there, and what we see of them is really cool. Like it's it's really interesting what the salvation does with you know the same sort of themes in terms of um, the main character's religious what's his name Falkirk or something yeah. like that. I think Selkirk. Selkirk, yeah, that was it. You know, it's the same. There's a lot of the same themes going off. How much of a monster can you be and still retain your humanity kind of thing, which I think salvation perhaps goes a little more typical alien yeah. in the way it throws the android at you at the end. And I feel like the religious aspect of, of this one is not as much like crisis of faith. And this is more just focused on devotion, I guess, because the main character, you know, the, there's a lot of, I guess, focus on sin as well. And the main character coping with things that, that he's done or been a part of or been a part of which someone else might look at and just be like, well, you're just surviving, you know, whatever. But in a religious context, he's horrified of some of the things he's done and been a part of. But yeah, it does get interesting near the end where his companion is, it kind of made me like, I guess, I don't know. It was, it was a weird ending where the character he's been surviving with and he like idolizes her and like sees her as an angel and everything. That was a good panel as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's just like, totally, I know she's not human, but we like to we like to treat our our androids nicely in the alien universe, and he just doesn't. You know, she's like, "Please save me," and he's like, "No, your company, you know, scum," <laughs> just kills her. But don't you think that that's more company scum than more robot scum? I, I feel like the robot thing's more to justify the fact that he nail he just fucking lights her up than anything. I I feel like a lot of that plays into the the alien trope of you know the the company. Yeah. It's a little more than that because he's been having sexual fantasies about her. Yeah. Yes, Mm -hmm. I suppose that's fair. It's weird because he feels betrayed in a way by her hiding her true existence because he's been idolizing her. It's a very simplified childlike way of doing it. But I mean, yeah, the trouble with this, again, me speaking as someone who at the time this was sort of new, it was telegraphed way too obviously because I remember reading this and thinking, wait, are they really redoing the new and what was the Bueller was his name in book one and two. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought they ripped away. They're having the sexual desire and fantasy and she's going to turn into a robot. Yeah, she's a robot. So I don't know if they were deliberately emulating or copying that, but to me it felt a bit too on the nose. Me personally, I think whenever you get a kind of artwork which is this heavily stylized, it's going to be divisive. Me personally, I'm not a fan. It felt, again, at the time, because it is not long after, it felt very Sam Keith-like. Oh, no. Do not spit on Mignola like that. (laughs) It's heavily stylized. 
It's a similar kind of thing. And this has got a very good way of doing shadows, but it's too heavy. It's like either black shadow or everything into white. Compare that with Sacrifice, where you get that soft gradient of things, which is way more better presented with this. I mean, I got there's some nice symbology in this, but in terms of the artwork, it, so it didn't really do it for me. But like for, for you guys, it did. But I think it is going to be a divisive art style because it is so heavily stylized. I don't feel like it's quite... I can't compare this to Sam Keith at all because it's not... I don't really know how to word this because I really... <laughs> oh, from Female War? Yeah. Yeah, no. I did, did you not recognize not, the name? Yeah, I had to look it up. I'm sorry. It took me a second. But yeah, no, I would not... I wouldn't put this on that level. I still stand by Sam Keith with Inhuman Condition. Have you read that one? That was one of the Digest ones. No. I didn't it was after Fast Track to Heaven. What about you, Eric? Is that a no? I have, yeah, I've read it. You have. So I think that's one of those ones where it's getting the right style for the right narrative. Right. An inhuman condition, I think he is fucking perfect for. And that that's what I felt for this. Like for this story, that stylized type okay. works well. But in terms yeah. of like in terms of where I would put it with, you know, alien comic art, it's not my favorite. But because it works well because you have a similar sort of thing going on with the writer, the writing, how everything is presented, it's that similar sort of heavy stylized that you just got like a captain who right at the start he flips out and he says, You come with me on the lifeboats. He doesn't explain anything and then he gets rescued by the guy and then he just Oh fuck you, give me water, fuck you. But he's going off the deep end and but the thing I like about that is like you have Aurum in Covenant and he's always oh, the religious character, so he's off the deep end. Here, the religious character is like the one who keeps perspective. The ones who are not religious are the ones who are either doing the weird stuff or they're too corrupt, i.e. the robot yeah. symbolized by corporate, or the captain who's doing it for his own ends, blah blah blah. It, the guy's keeping he's clearly working off his own fantasy logic, but it's keeping him on the straight and narrow. He's not flipping out, which That's makes for a nice kind of subversion of what you'd expect from the tropes you get in an alien film. Yeah, because, I mean, let's let's be fair, the religion... Like Salvajay in book one. Yeah. Cult leader, the religious guy, he's... It's not massively prevalent outside of perhaps Alien 3, but when it is, it is normally, you know, the cult aspect of it, not so yeah. much perhaps the religion aspect, but they're the bad guys, yeah. Annie McKay in Sacrifice, she was the religious character, but it reinforced her pragmatism. She's got to do what she's got to do, but she's justifying it in terms of her faith. And here you have a very similar thing. I've done terrible things, but I've not done it with Glee. He was trying to kill me. I know you're with me, God. You haven't abandoned me, my Lord. But you're seeing him actually, he, like, he's actually doing like the right kind of thing survival-wise. But he's not the evil person. He's not corrupt. He's not doing the kind of things like David Ate does in Covenant, where, you know, hail Mary, let's kill all the humans. How dare you? And I, I worship the whatever. He's, you can kind of see there, it's, it's keeping them on the track they need to. And it's, mm -hmm. it's an interesting way that the story goes about that. But it's the presentation of the story. It's very, it's a lot more on the nose and comic like than sacrifice. Sacrifice is structured more cinematically. This is structured more like you would expect a comic to be structured. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. 
I did like the story. It, it was a good story. I just like reading it right after Sacrifice. It was like, ah, that was better. But they are themed very similarly in terms of like the personal faith elements with the main character. Although there's enough distinction there as well to make them quite unique. Yeah. I never felt like they were too similar. Yeah. Despite a lot of the same themes taking place in the book and then both being believers. The artwork I could kind of get with, like I've always thought the Hellboy series was really cool. And to see that style applied to Alien, like I thought the aliens all looked really strong and the artwork was compelling. And, and the panel in the hive as well, you know, with the grotesque. Oh, with the queen. Yeah, um, that, that part was awesome yes. when he's like descending into hell. And it's one of few times you ever get to see non-human hosts because they're all those mm-hmm. ape creatures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I liked it. And it again, it goes back to the company being the greater villain of the alien universe. And, and they go into that quite bluntly when she's the android is like, oh, help me. There will be a bonus for you in it. And then he kills her and talks about the true devil being the company. I also thought it was kind of weird at the beginning how fast the captain just like screws over the rest of the crew. Like it's literally the next panel. I think he'd been in a fight or something when we meet him. He talks about acid that's burned him at one point. Yeah, Right. That confused me for a second because it was so abrupt. I was like, yeah. wait, what happened? Like, Because they're just having alien, food or... and then he goes, yeah. no, you, he doesn't even try to save anyone else. Just I don't think he's there when they're eating. There's hey, a panel which shows him sort of, yeah, shows him limping in. I just think like he's he shoots from, the rumor. <laughs> well, he shoots the dude who was supposed to have checked the, um, yeah. the, the cargo hold. Also, you had these like interesting pterodactyl creatures on the planet going to yeah. what you were saying, the the wildlife, Eric. Like I always like to see that where you see some of the alien mm-hmm. wildlife on, on the different planets. Like we saw some of that in the original EVP comic as well. See, the pterodactyls reminded me of uh, the prequel, actually. Oh, yeah? As in issue zero, and uh, he did the the cover artwork for. Oh, of EVP, right. When they go to the, the one. Yeah, the ones with the small yeah. wings. Yeah. Yeah, and like the sneaky creatures and yeah, stuff like that. that made me think of those too, yeah. So I like seeing that kind of stuff as well because I think it's very world-building. You know, it echoes back to um, the original, you know, Mark Verhaden's run with the, the idea of there being this natural biosphere that the aliens were a part of and the checks and balances. And, you know, you see the winged creatures in, in the first series as well. I like that. I do have to wonder, because, uh, you know, the big plot twist, although at the time I, I remember thinking it's not just that he's eaten people, is it? But, yeah, it's just that, oh, the terrible thing I've done is I've cannibalism to survive. So I guess that's not very high up on your list of sins. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's just, it's not like, ah, I'm going to kill you to eat you. It's, he had to kill him and now he's dead, might as well, because he couldn't, all the food tasted like, like they try and eat the pterodactyl, it's like it tasted like dirt. Yeah, pretty much poisons them. But I remember thinking at the time, was it influenced by the film which came just a year before called Alive, which was based on the real incident of those, I think it was some Olympics people that crashed in the mountains and they had to cannibalize the dead bodies from the plane crash. And it was released only a year before this comic was released. So it made me wonder, was the writer influenced by that? Who knows? I'd like to know about that. Have any of the other comics done cannibalism? Can you remember? I can't remember anything overt, no. Okay. But I mean, here, it, yeah, I mean, that is the big thing. It, it's, he feels like, oh, he's partly responsible for helping the captain go up, so he feels like he's killed the crew, and then... Yeah. 
even though he didn't really have a choice. Yeah, and I've done cannibalism. But again, he's working into his own faith-fueled worldview. So for him, it is this big sin thing. And you can understand that's why he's thinking, but it is, it's, it's labored a bit intensely because he keeps on and on and on about it. And you think, okay, give me some aliens or something. I don't feel like the writings is deftly handled as it is in Sacrifice. No. You know, Sacrifice feels like a lot of layers. Yes. And this one feels very straightforward and this is this, this is this kind of thing. Yeah. I also thought it was kind of interesting, the concept of, and again, this kind of plays to the Earth War thing. They were like, the military just wants them all destroyed, but the company is trying to set up these alien reserves. And this planet specifically was not appealing for terraforming. It only had a single landmass and the biosphere was not quite ideal for it, I guess. But the aliens could survive there and there was wildlife. Fast breeding wildlife. Yeah. So that's why they had kind of picked this place as just like a, a reserve planet. So the company would just have aliens that they could use in this isolated place. And the crew didn't know about it. Only the, the captain and the android character, uh, the first officer, knew about it. Which is something they revisited as well in Resistance. You know, the idea of setting up like these reserves to stock aliens. Yeah. I like the concept, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I do like the concept because I think it was also something, again, in the mid-90s kind of thing is this idea of bug farmers. You know, they'd go and set up a hive somewhere so they could go and... I think for the bug farmers, it tended to be more... Because it was the age of royal jelly, it was more about getting royal jelly than necessarily getting aliens. But yeah, I like the concept. I think it works. I think it's good. I mean, logically, you'd think they would just put it up in a, in a controlled lab. They wouldn't just let them go crazy over a planet. But within the context of the story, it worked because this is basically Robinson Crusoe gone really, really wrong. <laughs> That's what you get with this. It's Robinson Crusoe given a religious alien themed flavor. I think for, from that perspective, it's saying it works isn't right, but it, it provides an interesting viewpoint for the reader, I think. And this also kind of deals with the theme of sacrifice a little bit in the end, too, where the main character sacrifices himself to wound the company because he is or deny them a win because he's like, they're too strong for me to, to fight. And the best I can do is just deny them this. But again, that also feels like it's part of the salvation theme because he's making up for everything he feels he's been a part of. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and there is, again, in common with Sacrifice, there is some nice dialogue where he is justifying it in his religious point of view, especially when he goes in the nest and he sees the queen. And he talks about, like, the, I forget the exact wording, but he talks about, like, a, a demon sitting on the throne. Oh, yes, yes. That, that's some nice iconography that's being woven in, into the sort of internal prose at that point. There's some nice stuff. It reminded me about the, the other story, which never actually got completed. Again, it's religious. It was that one that was set in London during the Earth War, but England is sort of like reverted to feudal time. You're, you're thinking of Crusade. It actually got finished in the Marvel Omnibus. It was the first okay. time ever they published the end of that story. Really? I don't think I've ever read that one. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, because I remember they had the, a queen and it was sort of like in the basement of a cathedral or something, but it was a similar kind of theme you got to this one when you have this queen presented. 
So, yeah, it uses the religious stuff. They, again, these aren't, this is what I should have said earlier, these aren't so much religious themes as sacrilegious themes, which flow throughout the, because they're, they're yeah. inverting these. Things. Now you have Annie and this character, they are within their own personal narratives, it is religious, but the writer is using it as a plot device to make sacrilegious presentation, which within an alien story works really well. Yeah. It works really well. The, the alien is fantastic as a devil. Yes, it is. Or you, you have that more in terms of like the way the tarot cards do the devil, where the devil isn't evil, but it's there to do a job. And it's just if you, if you get obsessed with it, that's on you. Like yeah. the company gets obsessed with the alien. When you have the devil in the tarot, it has the people all about the feet of the devil because they're the worshippers. They've got caught up in the orgies. And that is not what the tarot card represents. It's not saying you've got the devil card, mohaha, you're going to die. It's about working through that and rising above temptations. And that's kind of like what the alien sometimes functions for in these comics it's you can get obsessed with the alien using it as a bioweapon or or for religious like salvage aided or musical one. purposes yeah you can get upset or david eight you get obsessed by it but if you go above that then you, you that was your personal journey yeah. and there, there's a valid there's a validity to that and here he had to sacrifice himself like machiko did in avp she was responsible for the running of the colony She's in a way got to kill her child to kill the outbreak because mm -hmm. the, the, the colony in AVP was Machiko's child. She was taking over as the guardian parent. There's a lot of personal responsibility in yeah. how you react to what you're seeing. Well, what you're dealing with, yeah. Yeah, and he has, and of course, Annie McKee. She was willing to sacrifice herself, but she sacrifices her sight, which for a religious person, a religious person's sight, it's very symbolic, third eye and all that. Here, he sacrifices his, because for him, he's going up to heaven, I guess, so he's not going to mind as much. It's kind of interesting as well in, in the, it also means she loses a lack of, she loses certainty. Mm. You know, that's the Vision. thing that her, yeah. yeah, her and her mother argued about. Annie wanted certainty. She needed black and white. But that's what to... drove her as a child to the. Yeah. And then she loses her vision and now she loses certainty of, of perspective, I guess. Now we're going back to sacrifice again. <laughs> she gains a certainty in a way although she said i've got to learn to appreciate less sort of thing in a way it gives her certainty because she says i'm no longer the god isn't with me but the devil isn't either it's like she's no longer held back by that whereas i in this one he's liberated by it yeah i do love that final panel on sacrifice though when she is blind but she's still seeing things in her mind and she's seeing the man she's presumably getting together with as well as the alien the nightmare she's been dealing with and it makes you like think about that like someone who's seen most of their life and and had past trauma and these nightmares and now they're suddenly blind like what are they seeing in their mind after they're blind like for her she's literally seeing past the illusion because she says i'm gonna face the alien i need to see you know the devil i need to see in the devil's eyes and the last thing that she sees is the alien's face and she's seeing that illusion of these glowing eyes and the horns which are actually spikes coming through the ground but then you see them in the visuals they diminish and they fall away and she mentions there are no eyes yeah yeah so for her she's seen through the illusions and it's yeah. kind of like a prison she placed herself in she's seen with certainty at that point yeah but it's the certainty of 
life. She's choosing life, whereas Ripley, she chose to end life. Finality. Preserve the life of everyone else. Mm. And this character, he's, in fact, he's got more in, com in common with Ripley in that point of view, in, in Salvation. He's ending his life to... He's not preserving life in the galaxy, so he's, he's actually like got an environmentalist thing. He wants to preserve the life on the planet, which is a bit ironic because in the next panel, the entire island... Like, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was just going to be a tiny little explosion or something. But... Yeah. Exactly. And he nailed, the, um, he nailed one of the monkeys himself, didn't he? Yes, he did. By accident. But, yeah, yeah, true. So I did actually like the panel where it was talking about him having hallucinations and it was like, I'm fairly sure I saw a bit of the ship, but I'm fairly sure it was an illusion and he just walked by and it's, it's right there. Yeah. 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 But yeah, it is interesting. You mentioned the parallel with Ripley Eric. Like she, you know, they, they both kill themselves to like as a fuck you to the company kind of. Or for just genuinely and altruistic reasons. They've got reasons which make sense to uh -huh. them. In the same way that those who were, you know, making the babies, they, it made sense to them. One is a sacrifice, the other is a sacrifice. It's not necessarily less valid, but it's what would you do in that circumstance? Would you, like even in this story, would you set the self-destruct or would you have saved the android because she said no we can escape because she said yeah I, I get on the lifeboat go up there put us in hypersleep pods we can i think i could fairly say fairly safely say i'd have probably gone up <laughs> yeah in, yeah i'll, go with, I'll <laughs> go with the bonus i'll go with the bonus yeah but now the the question of the sacrifice is a lot harder and and you know they make a point of it in there as well you know can you truly understand that until you spent nine months living under that shadow? Yeah. And, and, you know, the book shows us what happens when it doesn't. And it's not even that. You have, like, Ricketts. He said, yeah, my, my wife was killed. My child was taken away. You don't just get this sense of, oh, well, they just started churning these babies out. You get the sense, as it goes on, you get the sense that they've been through stuff that made mm -hmm. them change their minds. It wasn't just, hey, oh, let's do this. <laughs> Can you imagine that that being proposed? I know, why don't we churn out some babies? <laughs> yeah. I, that was something that I missed as well, you know. Um, I think it comes after, but it, it also, there was echoes to Rogue and the idea of genetic dummies uh, that they use in Rogue to use as like hosts and stuff like that, which I thought was... Sacrifice kind of makes it more horrific in that they are presented as small children. You know, they are babies. Mm. Whereas Rogue very much makes it, it's a functioning thing, but it's got no head. It's not alive. Like in um, Genocide as well, where you just had literally a hunk of meat that the chest burster comes out of. Oh, so yeah, so it, it preceded both of those then. Yeah, so Gen uh, Genocide did it, didn't it, first? Yeah. I mean, that's what I would have done, but you can't have the same kind of ethical message no, no. if you did that. It wouldn't have the same emotional effect. Yeah. Again, it's it's a mind fuck which has lasted mm -hmm. this many years. <laughs> it gives you that. But that, that's when sci-fi is at its best, when it's making you question it these also things. It makes you wonder about the whole human reproduction aspect in the future. If these, like, are they just clones and they're just justifying it because they are clones? Or have they actually genetically modified them so that they can't feel fear or pain or whatever? And we see a bit of, you know, this kind of aspect in Covenant where they have these big drawers just full of embryos. It's like, are these yeah. birthed from humans or are these just birthed in a machine in a test tube somewhere? So Giga's pistol. Right. It's not an aspect of the uh, alien universe that's too explored. So when we see little glimpses of it, it's interesting. It's been an interesting trip 
The one thing I would add, me and Adam both said it to Aaron when we came on here, there is a final panel in Salvation which made us think, oh, is it that Sacrifice came after? Because it feels like it's, it's not. Apparently Sacrifice was published first, but you could retroactively think, oh, it's a prequel. Because what happens after he's, you know, exploded the ship, there's actually like space Catholics or something. <laughs> yeah. They say we're on the missionary ship, I think St. Peter, and it's actually a big sort of like Warhammer 40k style cathedral yeah. ship with a big massive crucifix on the, the red, again, St. George dragon sort of colour and cross, and they said, oh, we it's been this many years since the distress call stops signaling. Oh, these many brave souls have sacrificed. We are going to go on. We are the missionary ship. And in sacrifice, Annie came from what she says is a missionary ship. And we don't know why. We don't need to know why. But it had a mishap and there was an engine explosion. So you wonder, is it the same ship? So in hindsight, it could have been. But it's, it's, you wonder, did the reader, the writer from Salvation see that? And he went, oh, missionary ship. Yeah, let's make this a missionary. And they added it at the end. That was a nice bit of world building in a way. Yeah, because I, I went back to Salvation and looked at the ship crashing. I was like, is this the same ship? Does it mention it? Because I, I was wondering that myself. Because you just see an inferno, don't you? In yeah, sacrifice. yeah. I mean, you see a little detail. You but... see an outline of like the ship crashed. And of course, for for Annie, she talks about like the hell hellfire and stuff. So again, it's reinforcing her religious. In fact, it, it struck me because this would have been like a, a year or two after Terminator 2. It's very much like those nuclear war visuals in Terminator 2 with Sarah Connor, where she's having that nuclear firestorm hit her. It's a very similar sort of orangey color palette. It does make you wonder about like like religion and the future in the alien universe, like having these ships and stuff. Like it kind of makes me think of, again, like the Mormons in the Expanse or something like that, you know. Well, especially after the alien invasion of Earth and stuff, would that really be a thing? Right. Again, it works for these stories. As self-contained stories, the religious elements worked. They fed into things. It helped the story move along. You got right. character motivation. So whatever you think about, will there be, will religion itself exist or exist in the same forms that far in the future? Doubtful, but it could do. And science fiction always plays around with those could do's, what ifs, or what if it's a different religion, but it's just taken on the cross. Who knows? And of course, book one played around with that, but it's, it works for these. Again, those were the days when these were self-contained stories. Salvation does mention, you know, the I don't think it names Wayland Utani, but it just says the company. Yeah, yeah the cut. It could have been Bionational, could have been anything. But again, it's these self-contained things, and you do wonder was that a link to sacrifice or not? If you think yes or no, you're not right or wrong. But these are nice little self-contained stories, and that's how it was like back then. You had little glimpses into these other worlds. What ifs? So it's nice to go back to that time. I like having a big continuity when it's managed. Yeah. Well, things reinforce, but yeah, it's nice having these. I don't get me wrong. I enjoy the standalones as well, especially when they're of the quality that these two are. I think they can do both. Like, just like you had allusions to Earth War and this, you can have stories that feel self-contained, but still feel tied to like a wider thing. And there were a number especially of Especially because it where... doesn't, it, I mean, it doesn't say, yes, this was the Earth War. This could have been some other colony somewhere else where she was growing up. Right. But I, I do wish we see more of that from Marvel going forward, more stylistically self-contained stories and not everything is leading to the other or a different tale of the same thing. Like, So I, I hope they do 
go to that a little bit. So we'll have to see. But yeah, just all in all, really interesting comics. I was going to bring up one more religious um, ship thing. It made me think it was kind of the uh, Raised by Wolves. You know, uh, obviously that explores it to a much more intense kind of apocalyptic degree. But it was seeing the big religious ships in that show kind of made me think of that when I saw the ship at the end of this one. Yeah, very big, very grand, very um, opulent display of religion, I guess. And that's a fair point. I hadn't really thought of race Bibles in terms of the Mithraic and that kind of thing. And the symbolism thereof. Right, are we, are we done? Yeah, sorry we lost Christian folks. <laughs> I think his internet went kaput. I me- I messaged him. I was like, you know, we've after we'd waited for a bit, I was like, we're going to continue, crack on. Try to join us again if you come back. Oh, yeah, it's just, actually, he's literally just replied. Where, <laughs> oh. <laughs> where? Uh, never mind. I've enjoyed talking about the, the com- these comics with you guys, you know. It's like I said, we've had a bit of critique for how negative we've been lately. And it's not like we like being negative. We're just topical in general, I guess. And if the stuff out at the time... We're honest. Yeah. I wouldn't want to censor us. And to be no. fair, I mean, I kind of set this episode up to be a good one by going, let's talk about something we like. And I went to a guest and, and went, do been. you like this comic? Do you want to come and join us? So, you know, I, I did set this up a little bit, but I know, I know that we're not alone in the general perception of these specific comics. You know, it's like I said, Cradan asked us to talk about it. It's one of his favorite comics. Sacrifice, that is. So, yes, we hate negative episodes as well. We do. Hey, sometimes they're fun. But I do think it's good to have balance. And we'll have our negative one when we talk about Marvel Arc 2. Well, that is another reason why I was like, I need to do this episode. Because we come off Alien 3, which was far more negative than I expected. We come off Prometheus, which I kind of expected, but it was still tiring. Yeah, You know what you're getting. And then I was like, we've got Marvel's Arc 2 coming up, which I know is going to be a bummer. So let's just pick something fun to talk about that we like. And that's the great thing about this vast backlog, this vast catalog of books and comics is that we can dip into it and talk about specific things. You know, a lot of what we do is what's out at the time and you're not getting a review of Colony War because I cannot physically handle oh, please, how on. I am going to so behave in that episode. No, because <laughs> I, I want to see you go off. I can't. I can't do it. We should do our own audio drama version of it. No. <laughs> no. But I hope you've all enjoyed this. You know, what are your thoughts on sacrifice and salvation? Please do let us know. And Cradan, if you're listening to this, I hope this has given you um an hour and a half of distraction. And this one's for you, buddy. So Adam, do you want to give the social whoring a go? Yes. If you'd like to visit us on our website, it's avpgalaxy.net where we have a whole bunch of good stuff like editorials, interviews. You can find this podcast there, as well as a lot of information on the franchise history and news on upcoming things we're looking forward to. Uh, We're also on all the major social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you just search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. You can follow me personally on Twitter at underscore Corporal Hicks, and that is Alien, Predator, Stargate, Airsoft, all the nerdy kind of bullshit I'm interested in. And if you'd like to follow me personally, it's at RidgeTop21 on both Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to follow me, just go to AVP Galaxy. That's my home. You're bored? Go to AVP Galaxy. There's stuff. We've got No, you don't no, don't don't be bored. You know, there's a thrilling place that you should be part of your daily routine to come and check out. 
Yeah, it's not. <laughs> it's not a sacrifice to visitors. <laughs> that was awful. I don't know. Oh, fucking awful. <laughs> so if you come to us, it feels like salvation. Yes, there we go. It should be a part of your religion. Also, we do weekly streams on Sundays. Uh, we play video games, so if you want to chat to us. That sounds Sunday mess. <laughs> Though I do actually have an idea for another thing on Sundays that I want to run by you both after this. Ooh, okay. Ooh. All right. We'll have to yeah. go over that. Preview. So, thank you everybody for listening. This has been Corporal Hicks, Bridgetop, Xenomorphin, and Christian. Signing off. <laughs>